So the last several months since we started a new, new sermon series called King and Kingdoms, um, we've been talking about Jesus as King. It's one of the major life settings, purposes, and themes found in the book of Matthew, this letter of Matthew, is this idea that, that Jesus is King, that he's been foretold of through all of the Old Testament. And Matthew really wants you to get this picture, even from, I think, the first couple of chapters, Herod is asking the question, who is born? Who is this child that is going to be born that will be the king of the Jews? This idea is, is deeply ingrained into this idea. We've been talking about what it means to be citizens in God's kingdom. I love that song, the first song that we sang. It's one of my favorite songs. Um, and, and this idea that we are citizens in God's kingdom. And so Jesus is on the side of a mount and he's got probably hundreds if not thousands of people who are listening to him by this point and yet he takes a moment not to generally speak or, or primarily speak to the multitude but to primarily speak to those few true followers the, the a lot of people have gathered to be enticed by Jesus or the mysteriousness of Jesus or to see him work a miracle but there are true disciples who are understanding the heart of God through the person and work of Jesus, and Jesus begins to speak into their life. He takes a moment. He, he reminds them that they are not approved by their good works. They are approved by God because of his good grace. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, we have this first section that we call the Beatitudes, and, and we can see in verses 3 through 9 that Jesus is really laying out what is a Christian's, what is a follower of Jesus's, what is his, his, his character, what are the, the marks, if you will, of a believer in Jesus. These traits are found in all authentic believers. It's not that you can have some that don't have these and others that do. No, these are the characters, the character traits of a follower of Jesus. In that second section that Pastor Justin concluded with last week in verses 10 through 12, if we live like Jesus, if, if we have these character traits, if we have these marks, there's also going to be another seed word, and that seed word is there's going to be conflict. There are going to be people that are going to be drawn to this, and yet there are going to be people that are going to be turned away from these living out these character traits. And for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is really going to be talking about um, this conduct, all right? If we know what is our, in our inner being, what is our very nature, we know that's going to produce conflict, but we also know now, okay, how do we then live in the world? What is our conduct in the world? And so looking at this passage, it tells us here in verse 13, if you have your Bible, your own Bible, and you mark in your Bible, you may want to circle this term, you are, you are. The word you are here in the Greek is emphatic. All right? That means it's carrying a very strong meaning with it, but it, it's saying this. It's saying, you alone, you only, you alone, you only. So it could read like this. You alone are the salt of the earth. Or if you skip down to verse 14, you alone or you only are the light of the world. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, you know, that all authentic believers in Jesus are, it's not a question mark of are we going to be the light and the salt, but he's saying, no, you are these things. This is the way that you conduct yourself in the world. You will be salt, you will be light. And he's also saying this, for our world, meaning both the cosmos and the people of its inhabit the inhabitants of its, of its world, uh, is that... The, the salt and the light of the world is, is not our government. It is not education. It is not money. It is not systems. It is not power. It, it is not popularity. But you, the church, are the world's salt and light. Jesus gives us these kind of two metaphors um, here, this idea of, of salt and light, and I, I'm just going to tell you straight up, I'm going to spend most of my time in dealing with the salt aspect. I will mention light, but he's uh, concluding kind of the same truth by the end of this. So let's look at this just for a few moments. You are the salt of the earth, but if 
salt has lost its taste, how should the saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You know, we don't think much about salt, right? Except for when we had the lack of it. You know, we, it's a condiment that we set on our tables. Um, I remember when we were at the hotel with uh, Wiesman's after we, we brought him home or to the hotel to hang out with us, the salt and pepper shaker was sitting on the table. I'd never really seen those before. And we like, he was testing the pepper and smelling it and, and the salt and those sorts of things. But, but salt in ancient times was extremely valuable. Extremely valuable. The, the Romans... Uh, would often say there is nothing, I think it was Pliny that actually said this, there, that, that there was nothing more valuable on the earth than salt and sunlight. Two most prized commodity on the planet. Roman soldiers were often paid in salt. Instead of getting a paycheck, instead of getting coins, instead of getting paper, you just got a bunch of salt. I mean, it was extremely valuable. This is uh, this is where we get the phrase, have you ever heard this, uh, they're not worth their salt. It's a, it's a reference to a Roman soldier who is terrible at being a Roman soldier. So they're getting paid this wage of salt, and yet they're not worth that much. Okay? Um, it, it was also where we get in our English term, the word salary is from a Latin word that we get the word salt. Salt carries with it a, a very, very important thing. One of the articles I read this week was talking about, you know, that Rome, one of the major things about the Roman Empire, uh, which in so many ways is just, I mean, phenomenal, um, is the road system. They were able to invent roads that ultimately led to Rome, right? All roads lead to Rome. And they were supposedly extremely very good roads. One of the major purposes for the Roman Empire to build Rome, uh, or roads leading to Rome was so that they could easily transport salt to the city. Great, great value. Even wars have been fought over salt. When Laura and I were as college students, we spent a summer with Campus Crusade in uh, Minsk, Belarus. Now, you probably don't know where that's at. It's in the world, I promise. I've been there twice, or a long time. Spent about eight weeks, I think, we lived there, and I got to visit Krakow, Poland. And inside of Krakow, Poland, it's known for a few things. We got to visit Auschwitz, which is a concentration camp where bazillion Jews lost their lives. It was a life-transforming experience, to say the least. But one of the other things that we got to do while we were in Krakow is that Krakow is known for its salt mines. We got to go inside of this mine. They lowered us down, I think, several miles underneath the ground. And you went down there, and there was an old mine that they mined salt. And they literally, at this point, they're no longer mining salt there, but there was a cathedral down there. I almost thought about showing you pictures about it this day. There was, like, wall carvings of, like, the Lord's Supper and, or the Last Supper and, and all of these figures and, and stories played out where artists had come down there and shaved it all out of nothing but pure salt. And also, in those areas is where one of the wars was fought over nothing more than salt. It was extremely valuable in history. It was, a salt was a sign of friendship. That if a person came to your home, um, even if they were your enemy, if your enemy walked up into your crib, all right, and, and you've got salt laying there, and they all of a sudden pour salt in their hand, and they eat that salt immediately, you must treat them as your prized guest. History even says that, 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 that you must offer your, your, your home as a sanctuary, even if it's your enemy, if they eat your salt, as well as give them protection. Covenants were often made with salt. We even see this in the scripture in 2 Chronicles 13.5 and Numbers 18.19. They actually reference this. When two people made a covenant, they would both eat salt in front of witnesses and that sealed the covenant, all right? So next time you go to a wedding, just expect the people, hey, honey, I do, right? I do, okay? It was a, a sign of a binding contract between two people that was sealed with salt. God even required of the Israelites that salt 
be sprinkled on the meat as it was sacrificed. This is found in Leviticus chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 43, Ezra chapter 9. God said that if they did not sprinkle salt on the offerings, then they were unacceptable. The Bible, I think it's in Ezekiel as well, even references this. Salt was used that as soon as a baby was born, they'd cut the umbilical cord and they would douse babies, newborn babies, in a covering of salt. Now, why did they do that? Well, salt has municipal products in it as well. It was meant that if there were any delivering a baby, it was obviously quite different as well then, but if there were any cuts and nicks on the baby that could cause it to be infected, they would rub salt all over that baby in hoping of killing the infections of those possible things. But is this, are these the things that Jesus is talking about in this particular passage of Scripture? I, I, I don't think so. I think the, the main drive that Jesus is going to, I'm going to tell you three of them, but I think the last one is the most important. The first one is this, as I think that Jesus could be referencing here, is that, that salt is a flavor enhancer, is it not? Okay, I love salt. Salt and vinegar chips are manna from heaven. All right? I do not go to the lake without salt and vinegar chips and some Dr. Pepper. Both of those things are from God. One says doctor in front of you. It's got to be good for you. And the other one has salt and vinegar and some sort of chip product, potato product on it. And it is good. The Lord says it is. Those are great. Those are good things. Salt as a flavor enhancer. Job even mentions this idea. Amen. We love salt. Job chapter 6 verse 6 says this, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of a malo? You know what that juice of a malo is? It's talking about an egg white. I mean, I don't know about you, but I like a little egg with my salt and pepper. Right? I mean, if you're going to make me fried eggs, scrambled eggs. Laura and I went to Boyce General Store yesterday for breakfast. If you've not been there, it is also good. All right? Delicious. And it's like, man, I'm dousing this stuff. Who wants to eat an egg without salt? Okay? Very few people. Because it is good. And Scripture even says, who wants to eat that? All right? So if you have a problem with it, read your Bible. Get to it. All right? We enjoy that. What is salt supposed to do? It enhances the flavor. It brings out the, the trueness of the flavor. So Jesus, maybe in some small sense, is saying we as the church are to be this salt that enhances the flavor of the world. Not its sinfulness, but its godliness. We are to make it better. We are to make it palatable. My mom, as I've told you, is battling heart disease, and in that, you know, they're really encouraging her um, to lay off salt. Do you know how difficult that is? Because most of the food that we eat has what? In America, salt, sodium, and sugar in it. And we love those things. So it can be very difficult to live this tasteless life that the world in and of itself without Jesus, without the church is tasteless. And Jesus is encouraging his followers of Jesus or his followers. He's saying the church is the salt. The church is the enhancer. The church makes it better. That's one of the ways that maybe Jesus is talking about here. We bring out what is best in each other and in the world. The second thing is, is that you've noticed if you've ever eaten salt before, that salt makes you thirsty. Salt makes you thirsty. It is extremely difficult to eat something that is layered in salt and not want something to drink. This is not all bad. Even most athletic runners, before they run, will often pop several salt pills before they run. They do this, why? Because it makes them stay hydrated. It causes them, as they're running that race, to want to drink more water. Jesus obviously knows this. Why? He invented it. He invented your body. He created your body. 
And he invented salt. He knows everything about your every system from head to toe in every one of us and has created this, this gift, sodium, salt, that makes us thirsty. So Jesus is maybe even saying in this passage that the church is the light of the world, yes, but that it's also the salt. Maybe not only is it an enhancer to this tasteless society, but also that we as the church... We are to make people thirsty for Jesus. We are to make people thirsty for God. Is this not one of the, the core Beatitudes? May we hunger and thirst for righteousness. In the same way, the way that Beatitude, the way that character plays out in conduct is that not only are we hungry and thirsty, but we also make other people hungry and thirsty. See, we should be uh, around others. We are challenging them, not in a jerkish way, but in a loving, kinding way, even with compassion and kindness and servitude, all these things that we are challenging them to grow in word and in deed. There is no doubt that when I'm around certain people, man, I'll walk away juiced from those conversations. When I'm around certain believers in Christ, certain followers of Jesus, man, they, they make me hungry to know God's word and ultimately to know God even more. I mean, several of you in this room, because you're my brothers and my sisters, whenever we have certain conversations or whenever I hear about what, things that you're doing with your family or family devotions or ways that you're witnessing to people, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that stirs me or spurs me, as the scripture says, toward Christ's likeness. It, it makes me want to go, man, I, when, I, when I hear this brother, I mean, I'm that way towards John Piper. The brother speaks, and I'm like, man, I have no idea what you said, but I want more of this. I want more of this. When I read these books of dead men who have gone on before us, who, who laid, uh, especially the Puritans, and I read their experiences with God, and I go, man, I'm hungry for that. I'm thirsty for that. Um, my daughter Ava went and watched a movie with uh, Todd and Leanne's daughters yesterday and um, we were standing out in his driveway and I was talking about these things. I was thinking about this. I was like, man, whenever I, I get around you, brother, it's like, man, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. To love Jesus more. Or, or, or when, I, when I get to spend time with, with Pastor Justin, I'm, I'm, I'm able to do this and I'm going, man, I'm encouraged by this to love Jesus more. When I see people in their giftedness and serving God with, with all this fullness and passion, it's like, God, man, that makes me hungry and thirsty for God. Man, when I, when I hear guys like David Platt stand up and go, okay, I'm going to preach, and all the brother does is quote from memory the book of Romans. Do you hear me? The book of Romans, and then sits down. I mean, because what else do you say? It's like, man, that makes me hungry for Scripture memorization. He's not doing this in, in order to say, man, look at me and how awesome I am. I'm saying no, because he's a sinner. But man, it makes me thirsty. Christians, church, do you make people hunger and thirst for Jesus around you? Will, those be, will, will there be people who re rebel against that? Yes. It's a two-edged sword, the gospel is. It both draws and reflects. But God has called us to be a people who are so passionate about Jesus, so hungry for Jesus, that that begins to, to rub off on you. I am unapologetic in my preaching style because, man, I love Jesus. And I hope that you see that. I hope that you get that. There are lots of things in this pastor and that one, especially that one, um, that you should not be like. Okay? But one of the things I hope that you get in, in a very diverse group of leadership, in a very diverse group of people, and I pray that only gets more diverse, is that, man, you, you rub shoulders with brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're challenging them, whether they are lost or whether they already believe that when you are around them, there is something electric in the air. I want you to know what it is. It's called the Holy Spirit, and Baptists even believe in that guy. 
He is there. He has empowered us. He is compelled within us to go and to be the salt of the earth. Are you one of those people that's like, man, I don't want to have anything with Jesus? Or are you one of those people that goes, man, when I'm around that sister, when I'm around that brother, man, I am hunger for more. I'm challenged to want to know more about Jesus. The last one, which I think is the ultimate thing that Jesus is getting at here, is that that salt in the ancient world was mainly used as a preservative. As a preservative. You probably didn't walk into somebody's adobe or whatever house they were living in and see the salt shaker there or the little girl with the umbrella on the side of a can, all right? Or the little packets that you rip off and pour the whole thing on one fry. You probably did not see that. But what you did see, and why it was so valuable, was because we did not have refrigerators. Salt was used to keep meat and fish from spoiling. As soon as an animal is dead, it begins to break down immediately. Decay begins to happen. Rot begins to happen. Uh, you know, we have all smelled meat, haven't we, that begins to rot. It is a stench that you cannot get out of your mind. I can... You cannot be anywhere near a pond, but immediately when you smell something, you can go, that is a dead fish. Immediately, meat begins to decay. This is why in the desert especially, we're not talking about glacier areas where you can build a box out of stone or, or, or even rock and maybe pack it with snow. I don't know if they did that and make a Yeti out of it. I thought Yeti in the mountains was like, all right, but... In this situation, there are no coolers, there are no ice, there is no refrigeration. You are in the middle of, of desert, and you've killed an animal. You've got to feed your family on that animal for weeks or a week. How do you preserve it? Imagine on long journeys, being able to have a food source, but not able to take it with you because you cannot keep it cool. So by God's grace, gave man the ability, the creativity, the, the rationality to understand that we can use salt to preserve this. Literally, for these ladies and gentlemen, that's why salt was so valued, because it was a matter of life and death. If you had it, you had the possibility of living. If you did not have it, you were, had a greater possibility of dying. This provided a daily provision for food. So salt is used to prevent corruption. Get this. It was used to preserve what life was left in that meat. It was used to preserve what life was left in that meat. It was to slow the process of the decaying meat. Is the meat going to decay? Yes. Is it eventually going to spoil? Yes. Is it going to become rotten and stinky? Yes. I mean, we have all bought steaks and been disappointed because you forgot they were in there, and you go to cook them, and you open that sucker up, and you look through the cellophane to see a brown steak. Now, I would probably eat it. <laughs> all right? But, but we hate this idea of it's going to spoil. But salt is to preserve what life is in it. The church is meant, as Jesus has said here, to be what? To be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the earth. So not only does Jesus' statement say something terrific about us, but it also is saying something about the world. What is it saying about the world? It is saying that the world is both decaying, and dark. The world that you and I live in, all of history since the fall, has been in darkness and is decaying. See, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, humanity, animals, plants, and the little earth began the process of dying. See, sin affected all of creation, all 
of creation is broken. Even the passage, what is it, in Romans chapter 8, where it says that, that even the earth is groaning, longing for the return or, or, or the consummation of all things, the return of Jesus and how he, he's going to fix everything in the, and that the sons and daughters or the brothers and sisters of God would be revealed. It's not just about, you know, what's your carbon footprint. The idea of global warming may be true, maybe not true, but in the end, you know what's causing it? Sin. The earth is broken. Its inhabitants are broken. God says in creation, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Did they die immediately? No. That was God's grace. Did they die eventually? Yes. We see this thing that is taking place. The earth and its inhabitants are, are dark and they are slowly rotting carcass. See, we see this truth back in Genesis. God creates, it is good. Man sins, everything changes. Everything. You know, I don't know how many years are found between Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 6. You guys have been around me very long. I don't have charts for creation or for the end. I just believe with all my heart, God said it. He created it in the way that he did it. And guess what? Jesus is going to come back at the end of it. Okay? So I don't know how, it, it's not like, you know, day one is Genesis chapter one, and day two is Genesis chapter two. It's not chronological in that sense. So I don't know how much time goes from Genesis chapter one, when all things are good, to the fall. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter six, ladies and gentlemen, the world is in a very, very bad spot. Sin has consumed people. There's believed to probably be millions of people even on the earth at this time. And yet, it says in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention on the thoughts of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. All right? So possibly just a few years here, or maybe longer than that, we have Adam and Eve buck naked walking through the garden with God to sin taking place, to now on every man, woman, child, boy, girl, whoever, their thoughts are on evil continually. Insomuch that God grieves this and decides, I'm going to sovereignly choose a guy that doesn't deserve it. His name is Noah. I'm going to put him on a boat. I'm going to start over. So Noah is kind of a type of Adam. Adam's first created. All of humanity dies. God stoats over. He doesn't make him out of dirt anymore. He chooses a guy that doesn't deserve it. The Bible tells us that God showed favor upon him. That's the Hebrew word for Greek, uh, grace. And so he shows grace upon Noah. He sovereignly chooses him, tells a man in the middle of the desert, oh, it's going to take you a hundred and something years, but you're going to build this boat. I'm going to put a bunch of animals on it. I'm going to rescue you and your family. Eventually, after being in that water, floating around for, what, 40 days, 40 nights, something like that, all of a sudden they find land. And you would think, ladies and gentlemen, maybe God means business. And what does Noah do? Gets drunk. And after that, things get crazy again, leading up to this whole city called, or two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah, where all sorts of immorality was taking place in those cities to the point to where what does God have to do? Destroys them. He saves Lot and his family, tells them, don't look back at the city. All right? They must have been having a sale back at Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Lot's wife looks back, what does God do? Turns her to salt. We see this picture over and over and over and over. See, so the world is constantly moving toward probably some level of more decay and more darkness. Over time, we've invented new ways to sin. I would think that if we could travel back in time to Sodom and Gomorrah and say, well, look at how we sin now. I mean, they would probably be like, we didn't even do that. Like, those were lines we wouldn't even cross. I mean, Jesus, or the Apostle Paul even speaks of this in Romans chapter 1 when he kind of paints a picture that humanity, as it goes further, has increased 
its wretchedness in creating new ways to dishonor our God. Because of our sin nature, we are naturally bent towards sin, Satan, and death, aren't we? Or maybe it's just one of your pastors. Our hearts are deceitful and curious toward unholy things. Is that anybody else? Now, I, I, this isn't like, think high of me, because I, man, I have major, major issues. But I, I was never a drinker and, and drugs and those sorts of things. It was, it was never my temptation. But it, man, I was extremely curious to what that felt like. I mean, even right now, I, I'm just, man, like, I'm, I'm curious. Not that I don't want you to think I'm going home to cook meth today or anything. But I, I, I want you to get, it's like, man, I'm, I'm, I wonder what that's like. You know? We're, we're bent toward those things. We're, we're curious towards sin. Even to the point where we participate in it. I often say this, and you've heard me say it, but, you know, when your baby is born, you do not have to teach that baby to be bad. Ever. It comes out a liar. Did you eat the cookies? They got cookie all over their face. Uh-uh. Where'd they learn that? You been hanging out with your mama? All right? I mean, yeah, this is the picture. I mean, we don't, why? Because it's, their, it's our nature. We have a sinful nature. It's in us. We have to teach a child the ways of Jesus because they come out naturally bent toward, leaning toward darkness and decay and sin. And I have, I have you know, or, or like flies to rotting flesh, we are attracted, bent toward, curious about, and even desire ungodliness. I mean, I have never had a brother come to me and say, Pastor Eric, I need some accountability. I have been struggling looking at pictures of Amish women. Never happened. Ever. I'm talking about brothers in Christ. They have never come to me. Godly men, men that know the Scripture, men that, that evangelize pastors, preachers, disciples of Jesus, they've never come to me and said, man, I'm struggling and bent toward looking at Amish women. No, what are they? They're bent toward, their, their curiosity is not toward those things, but, but it's toward dark things, immoral things. Or another one. In our world, the way that it's got dark is consumerism. This is the celebrated sin of American Christianity. It's cool to talk with me about Jesus and all these things. Just don't talk to me about money or the consuming of things. It's extremely difficult. We are bent toward those things, even as brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't we? We want things, and, and we don't even, because we all want things, like if I was to tell you that, man, yeah, this family over here is dealing with immorality in their home, that, that would, we would often say, well, you know, that's, that's a fringe issue. There aren't many people or many families who are wrestling with that. And so we really look upon that maybe in negative light. But if I was to use the say that, man, we are struggling with consumerism and how we steward God's money, we would kind of play that off and all justify it. Why? Because most of us in this room are really struggling with that. You know, I don't think much about food until my wife declares that I'm on a diet. As we did this week. Okay, now she's not been given overweight jokes or anything like that. She's very gracious in things, but I'm terrible about taking care of myself. Like, I, I don't even think about food until I'm not supposed to be eating food. And I want you to know, I am a hangry person. So if I've been mean to you this week, I apologize. Because I am a terrible person to be around right now. And you know what it boils down to? Is I'm hungry. I'm not eating what I want to be eating. Why? Because, man, I'm a consumer. If this has done anything in this last week, it has revealed a God in my life that I did not know was there, and that is the consummation of food, the consuming of food. It's tough. That's where we're bent. Man, that's what's in our nature. Man, that's what we're making war 
against. See, the world is slowly disintegrating. And there have been times in, in history where this has been sped up, and there have been times in history by God's grace and God's plan that he has been hiding this or keeping this from having, happening as quickly as possible. I'm, I'm one of those guys, I mean, I, I, I love movies and, and good writing on television shows, but man, I, I love movies about the apocalypse. Like, what happens after the power grid goes out, Right? What happens after a virus sweeps into people and turns them into zombies? I, I like those kinds of movies. I, I don't like to be scared, but I, I like seeing what happens to people and things after these, you know, um, these issues take place. Why? Because you begin to see the picture of what it's like in our world when when it's really decaying. Not only the world, because it's interesting, because they'll sometimes, you know, they'll show an amusement park, maybe Disneyland or something like that in these movies, and it's all grown up. Or they'll show a famous building, like the White House, and it's all grown up. It's dirty, and there's animals running everywhere, and there's bushes and things all over the place. Why? Because not only does that affect the earth, but it also affects the people. And so you will see people who, before this takes place, begin to, to change and decay and, and to live more in a sinful life because of those things. See, the world is in a very, very similar state. I often ask myself, myself when I'm ask, watching those types of movies or shows, is where is the church? Where's the church? You know, if there's a nuclear fallout, does that mean all the Christians die? Where, where is the church in these things? So the, the world is slight, always slightly going towards darkness. It is always going towards decaying. And before you think I'm talking about fatalism, I, I'm not. Because God has provided ways for this to be slowed down and even slowed way down. So to slow the process of sin, God, who is patient and slow to anger and full of compassion, he, he does a few things to preserve and to, to slow down the process of sin, Satan, and death in the people of the planet and on the, or the planet itself. We see this back in the Old Testament. He begins this. In the book of Exodus, what does God do to try to slow the decaying process of sin? Well, one of the first things that he does is he creates law. He puts boundaries in place. He creates authority. He creates government. He places them, and this is common grace, both shown to Christian and non-Christians, that God has placed these things and placed law. Why is he doing that? Not to be a killjoy, but he's place these things into our life to stifle the growth of sin. Even in sinners, we uh, or, or excuse me, even in non-Christians, all have a state of morality, don't they? Even a mass murderer, if he loves his mama and you kill his mama, he's got a problem with that. Why? If you steal something from a thief, why do they get upset? Because within them, there is a natural moral state. God created us as moral beings, and he's placed these things, even in the Old Testament, to create law, to give us police, give us government, all these sorts of things. The second thing that he did, or one of the other things that he did, even in the Old Testament, is, is that God elects a group of people. He says to these people, you are going to be my people. Did they deserve to be his people? No. The original father Abraham had many sons, was a pagan worshiper. All of a sudden he's traveling and God shows up and once again sovereignly chooses him and says, you are going to be the father of a great nation. And from this nation, though, I have something specific I am going to do. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 through 3. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. God tells the elected people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, he tells them, man, you, 
I'm going to create you. You're going to be a great nation. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, he started out, he's saying, I'm going to create this people. They are going to be the salt and light on the planet. They're going to bless non-believers. They're going to bless the earth. This group of people will bless everyone. But eventually, the, the Jews, what did they do? They lost their distinctiveness. They lost what made them different. They lost being obedient. They, they lost their appeal. They stopped being a blessing and even began to refuse to be a blessing. No, we will not evangelize. No, we will not share Yahweh with the rest of the world. We will not be a blessing. We just want our blessing. We just want the promises that God is promising for us. Eventually, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 19, God says this, I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance in their ways and their deeds, I judge them. So the chosen people of God lived a life of disobedience. They became consumers instead of conceivers. So what does God do in his sovereign plan? He had this planned out through all of history. God implements through the person and work of Jesus what? The church. The church. So when Jesus looks at his disciples, notice that what he says is, here, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the, the world. So when, when Jesus looks at these disciples, right, there's multitudes, probably people from all over the place, but he's speaking to probably these brothers and sisters right here in front of him, his true followers of Jesus. When he's speaking directly to them, and yet the crowd can hear, the multitudes can hear, Jesus is bringing the charge, giving to the Israelites, and he's speaking it to the early church. What they would not do, you do. You be the salt and the light. You be the blessing. He, he changes responsibility from them and he gives it over to the church. What a picture and image of the church. We walk away from church and we know things like the church is the bride, the church is the vine, the church is the flock, the church is the kingdom, the church is the body, the church is the family, the church is the temple, the church is the light. But how about this one? Jesus declares... That the church is the preserver of godliness in the world. You are, you only are the light, are the salt. You and I, the church, are the preserver of godliness in the world. See, the church must be immersed in the culture. We must be rubbed deeply into it, and yet not it. Jesus is speaking here of the church must have influence in the culture for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of his kingdom. This is God's mission, and ladies and gentlemen of Mission Church, this is our mission. Notice Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth, the world. He is, he is saying that his kingdom is about the nations. You have a greater citizenship than that of America. It is the kingdom of God. You have a greater ruler than a president or king. It is the sovereign king. His name is Jesus. See, salty Christians have a global perspective. It is not just about me and here, but it is about my city. And it is about the world, the people of the world. Jesus knows this very beginning. He's telling these people, he's like, hey, I want you to know that you, you are the salt and the light of the world. All these people hear that. All the fringes hear that. But he's speaking it to these people. Why? Compelling them, commissioning them, degreeing to, you know, degreeing to, excuse me, declaring to them that they go and be salt and be the light. I remember as a child going to grocery shopping with my mom 
and going to the pig. You may know it as the Piggly Wiggly. We call it the pig. And you may remember this. If you do, you're probably old. I don't think stores do this anymore. But you can remember in the meat department that you could walk by this little thing. And, and hanging here was like typically this barn-looking thing. Had these big posts and like a really roof on it. And hanging on it was a big side of ham. You may remember that? It was just meat hanging in a grocery. And we're not in a foreign place. It was like a big country ham. Can I get an amen? I love country ham. All right. And so we, we see country ham, and it's just hanging there. And I used to think, man, why, why is that able to happen? we got steaks over here. They're in cellophane. They're refrigerated. But this meat is not refrigerated, and it's just hanging there at the pig. Well, if you look at that, it's because we know now, obviously, I've grown a little bit, learned some things, is that that, that country ham is covered in salt. Now, if the guy that was curing that meat, what if he just put salt on a, about a quarter size of that meat? Everything else would decay quickly and rapidly except for that little spot. See, that's how the church has tried to act in the world. Man, we're just going to be consumed with this little area, this little spot. I'm doing this for Jesus right here. I want my tight little community you know, I want a bunch of people who act and talk and look like me because that makes relationships easier. I want that for my kids. You know, I want my church to be filled with, with people my kids' age because, man, that, that makes it a whole lot easier. If we just, we don't want this to decay. All right, we want to keep hometown Bowling Green, just, you know, this little area just from decaying and getting any worse when all the rest of the world is decaying at a more rapid pace. See, Jesus already knows this, and he already knows what's our temptation. Our, our temptation is to just be secluded, to, to you know, kind of holy huddle up and just have and, and do these sorts of things. And yet God is already speaking to the nations, saying, go do something about it. You know, church history, he's looking at a bunch of bums practically in front of him. Most of those disciples had probably never left the radius of Judea. And yet, by the time church history tells us by the end of it, where are those brothers at? All over the globe. Brothers separate. Not because they don't love each other anymore. Not because they had a relational divorce. Why do they se- What compels them to separate and be proud of each other? The gospel to the nations. So this ragamuffin, you know, bums, these fishermen, these, these guys that are just probably, you know, doing their thing rough around the edges are, are now commissioned by God to reach the multitudes. This is God's work. See, we are to, to be the light in the world. This is the church's responsibility. We are to preserve the glory of God, to enhance it, yes, to make it thirsty, yes, but to preserve and to slow the process of sin's decay. You need to understand this, ladies and gentlemen. The church exists for the glory of God, its members, but also its non-members. You get that? I mean, one of the reasons why Mission Church is in Bowling Green is not for just us to all hug on each other. It's not just for us, but, but Mission Church exists for the glory of God. Mission Church exists for its covenant membership, but Mission Church exists for its non-members. It exists for this city. Our city should be enhanced. Our city should be better. We should have influence on this city. I'm going to ask you to do something that most of you are already doing, and that's get out your cell phones right now. Get them out. Get them out. Do you have a smartphone? Click on your contact list. Swipe it. Whoop. See every one of those people? That contact list, those, uh, you know, for some of us, they may have multiple, like my phone I know has my sister's name in it. All right? My wife has my sister's name in her phone. But there are also the majority of the names listed in your contact list I do not know. The, sitting, the person sitting across the aisle, 
does not know. But that contact list that you have there, that is your circle of influence. God has already placed you into those people's lives. And if every one of those people are Christians, then there's something wrong with your Christianity. Because God has told us, he's compelled us, he has given us a conduct to do, he has given us a mission to do. The people on that list, God has placed you amongst those people to know those people so that you can enhance their lives, so that you can make them thirsty for Jesus, but that also that you can share the gospel and be influential for the gospel's sake in those people's lives. That is your mission field. I want you to look to your left and to your right. We're, about, we're borderline Pentecostal this morning. I mean, look to your left and to your right. Any moment, snakes and Kool-Aid's coming out, okay? Look to your left and to your right. Who is here? Get this. Look at me. Who is here because you have been salt and light in someone's life? Look to your left and to your right. Who is here because you enhance the gospel in their life? Who is here, ladies and gentlemen, who has been invited? I'm not talking simply to a gathering. I'm talking about to a community of faith who is lost and far and undone from God and who is now here resting in this place because God in his good grace and, and mercy has used you and you have been obedient in the sanctification process to say, man, I'm going to have influence in these people's lives. I'm going to encourage these people's lives. I'm going to be pro-Jesus in front of these people's lives. Even if it becomes annoying to them, I am going to be the salt and light in this lives of these people. Take your weekly. Most of you are writing anyway. Some of you a grocery list. List right now all the non-Christians that you have. God has placed you inside of those people's lives. Why? To have influence in their life, to be salt, to be light within them. Where we are, there should be less crime. There should be less poverty. There should be less racism. Gossip should be dampened. People at your work, even if they think you're strange, if they come to your office to try to tell you something about their boss, they should know this is a no-gossip cubicle. They should know that about that wine because we're, we're reflecting, we're being the salt and the light. Our neighborhoods should be better places to live. We should be the best employees. We should have influence in our schools and in government. In Genesis um, God tells man, he tells Adam to, to steward the earth. And somewhere along the way, we think that he doesn't mean that anymore. But he has told us to steward these things. We've become distracted. Todd and I were talking a lot about that yesterday. We're just, we've become distracted, especially here in America, with all the things that we need to get done, our checklist upon checklist upon checklist, the things we need to take our kids through. We've got to get this done. We've got to get this done. We've got this done. And we stop living on mission, realizing every one of those opportunities is your mission. Jesus is reestating once again our original purpose, and that is to preserve this earth, his glory, his goodness, his grace. We are to hinder the process of decay and darkness. We are to make war against it. Jesus says in John chapter 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This passage not only reveals something about the earth, but it, it, excuse me, it reveals something about the church, but it also reveals something about the earth, and that, that it is darkness. I think because we're Americans and because we're a part of this planet, we just simply assume that the earth radiates glow, don't we? Because even the pictures that we see from telescopes, the earth is doing what? And it's beautiful. But here's the thing. Take away the sun, it goes dark. Take away the sun right now in the universe, and our planet goes completely dark. Dark of darkness. Take away our moon and what happens to our earth. Immediate. The, the earth itself permeates and gives no light of its own. And yet, because there is a sun, and because God has perfectly placed it on its, the earth on its axis and the moon in the right shape and size to his sovereign decree and plan, what does that moon do? That moon reflects, it acts like a giant reflector beam in the sky and places that on the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, we are called to be the moon. We cannot generate our own light, can we? But draw near to Jesus, he will draw near to us. And that causes reflection 
to take place. When people see us, know us, and see our lives reflecting the gospel, they will quickly know that the light they are seeing is not ours, but His. Man, I wish I had more time. This is our responsibility. This is our calling. This is our joy. I'm going to have to pick back up probably next week here. I'll end with this. Let me tell you about my friend Brian. I think it's been two and a half months ago. Um, I volunteer at, at Hope House, where, or the Program Living House, which is a part of Hope House, which we've told stories before. Many of you are involved in serving there. And in serving there, um, I've become very close. I called in my friends with four gentlemen who are part of the Program Living House, and they have very wild histories, histories unlike my own. I have nothing in common with these men except for we're both men. We're all men, and we're breathing. All right? That's how our lives were, extremely different. But I have become extremely close um, to these four men living in this house. This is where Pastor Justin works and where Brian is the director. My friend Brian, I was, I was talking to him this week, and, and Brian is the quiet one of the bunch. He's the, the thinker. He's the introvert of this bunch. This man has made terrible decisions in regards to alcohol and drug abuse. And, and I was speaking, and I was helping the guys. The way I volunteer there is I teach a Bible study, and then um, every so often when I can, I go, and, and I like to tinker with wood and that sort of stuff. And so I, I show them some things I've learned with working with wood. And, and, and that's my favorite type of discipleship is, is guys working alongside of each other, like I think we see Jesus doing. And as he's doing that, taking pauses and breaks to say, this is how this reflects God. And that's what we're trying to do there with these men. I was talking to Brian this week, and when Brian first went to the program Living House, he, he had um, several, he has really high blood pressure and some other problems um, as well. And started, he, he went to the doctor, and his doctor had never met him before, and, and, and Brian was, was pretty sick. They had to put him on some high blood pressure medication, and he's a very fit-looking guy, but, but a sick and this last week, he just went back to the doctor, and he said he was sitting there talking to the doctor, and as soon as the doctor walked in, he immediately looked, looked at Brian, and before he had any other conversation, he said, he said, dude, Brian, like, what's up with you? He goes, man, what's, like, what's going on? The Brian of, of two and a half months ago is extremely different. Like, dude, I, like, I can't explain it, and I don't think this doctor is a believer. And uh, he, was, he was sitting there asking Brian. I mean, he just he could not believe the change in Brian's life. I mean, it was radical. And Brian is a more introverted guy, but I love him. When I had a beard, we, I'd give him beard oil, and we would talk about the greatness of owning a beard. And so... Brian is, is standing there, and you kind of know Brian, and, and he goes, well, Doc, it's Jesus. He goes, Jesus has changed my life. And, and Brian even said, this guy's, you know, two and a half months of living at Program Living House, hearing the gospel every day. He gets up before they have to. He writes page after page about how Jesus has changed my life. He handed me a stack up this week. He's like, I want, you some, I want you to read this. And he looks at this doctor and he said, all of a sudden his doctor was like, what? He goes, yeah, doc. He's like, man, Jesus has changed my life and I want you to know that. The change that you see is because of Jesus. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the reason why Pastor Justin and Brian just had to leave is because brothers getting baptized this morning at Christ Fellowship. He's a new believer. And he gets it. He's the salt. He's the light. And, and he's, he's sharing that. He's, 
He's influencing the world with that. He wants people to know, man, if you see a change in me, and buddy, let me tell you, there has been a change in this man, and it is because of Jesus, and he already is compelled. I know what I've got to do with this. I must go be the salt. I must go preserve darkness. I must go share the gospel with other people. I must serve them. I must love them. I must take care of them. Why? Not so that you will look at me and glorify me, but as the scripture says here, you will glorify God. They will see your good works in who? glorify God. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of our message. We are all evangelists. We are all missionaries. This is the call of Jesus. This is the conduct of our lives. You have no greater purpose on this earth than to worship Jesus and to make disciples and to multiply. This is what the Sermon on the Mount, this is the heartbeat of Jesus. And when we do that, we become disobedient and the world begins to decay, 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 decay even more rapidly. If there's been anything that has been said in the news as of late or on Facebook is how Christians are upset with what's happening in the world. Let me clue you into something. The world is responding the way that they should be. They are lost. They are broken. They are miserable. They are decaying. The question is not why is the world doing the things that it's doing. The question is, ladies and gentlemen, is where is the salt? Where's the church? Where's the light of God? It is resting in this room, and it will be either covered up with a bush. Oh, no, don't let Satan blow it out. Or it will be a city that is set upon a hill that is radiating the glory of God like a lighthouse on a rocky shore saying, don't come this way. There is death. That is the call of Jesus. And yet one of our college students was telling me this week that she was talking to another girl. She was like, I want to disciple you. She said, part of discipleship is evangelism. I'm glad our college students get that because they can't be separated. And she said, this, this girl told her, she said, well, I just... I'm cool with discipleship. I just don't feel like it's my responsibility to evangelize. That's not my job. That is the lie from hell that has been spoken into the life of believers in the church globally. Because what are we supposed to be? Salt and light.